Well, good morning, friends. Good to be back uh, up here uh, sharing with you again this Sunday. And uh, hey, uh, real quick, uh, let's give the worship team and Pastor Dan a round of applause again. That was awesome. I mean, talk about going out with a bang, huh? Man, he got his money's worth on his last, uh, last round leading. That was great. Well, it's exciting to be here and uh, be part of such a dynamic church, and we're just uh, really grateful. So uh, this morning I uh, have a message I want to share that uh, I think is fairly timely for many of us. Uh, if you see in your uh, sermon outline there uh, or in your uh, bulletin, the, uh, the title this morning is Hope in the Midst of Giants. And we'll uh, get to that in a moment. But uh, on the screen behind me here, you're going to see a picture Half Dome in Yosemite National Park, one of the most famous natural monuments in the world. And when I was in seminary, I had an opportunity to spend two summers working at a camp uh, outside of Yosemite National Park in Central California. And one of the highlights of working at this camp was the weekly uh, hike we would lead students on, an 18-mile round-trip journey to the top of Half Dome in Yosemite National Park. And uh, you can see here, Half Dome, obviously, awesome uh, natural wonder. And from the valley floor of Yosemite, it's an 18-mile round-trip hike. Takes all day. You leave first light in the morning. Uh, you get to the top about lunchtime. You have lunch, and you, stay, you can only stay up there for about 15 minutes to a half an hour. Then you've got to start heading back to make it back before dark. Awesome time. Now, in the process of this journey to the top of Half Dome, there are a series of grueling physical challenges and obstacles that you must overcome in order to experience this magnificent view. And not the least of which, in terms of challenges, is this. When you get to the top of Half Dome, to the back side of Half Dome, the National Park Service has hammered into the back side of Half Dome large, heavy steel cables. And it extends about probably two, three hundred yards up the backside of Half Dome. And the only way to get to the top, it's so steep, the only way to get to the top is to literally uh, grab hold of these cables and begin to work your way up, uh, hand over hand, up the backside of this rock mountain, this, this mountain Half Dome. And I tell you what, this is, a, this is a scary deal. I've done this a couple times in my life. My wife and I actually did this together a couple of years ago. And uh, it, it'll get your heart pounding. And in fact, it's pretty dangerous. Almost every summer there are stories of people who slip and fall going up these cables on the backside of Half Dome. And, and uh, people die almost every summer doing this. Now, I would lead students on a hike every week uh, to the top of Half Dome. But... Obviously, this is a pretty significant challenge. But I'll tell you what, if you can overcome these challenges, you will enjoy one of the most spectacular views in all the world as you look out on Yosemite National Park and the Sierra Nevadas from literally about two miles up, and it's just awesome. Now, here's the deal. Without a doubt, one particular situation would play itself out almost every week on this hike. At some point or another along our journey one or more of our students would decide to drop out of the hike. They would decide to go no further. And they'd decide to turn back and go back to the trailhead. And they would do this because as they went forward on the journey, they thought in their minds 
that the obstacles in front of them, the trials in front of them, the challenges in front of them were too great for them to overcome. And no matter how awesome or inspiring the view from the top of Half Dome might be, the fear of the obstacles in front of them left them defeated and paralyzed without hope. And they chose to go no further. Now, friends, I share this illustration this morning because I believe the experience of these students who turned back from finishing the climb to the top of Half Dome is very similar to a common reality that many of us face in our lives. The reality of being confronted with an obstacle, a challenge, a setback, a trial in our lives that leaves us without hope, that leaves us paralyzed and defeated, oftentimes leaving us trapped in despair. And friends, I'll tell you something, it's a universal reality. It's universal. That means all of us. It's a universal reality that all of us will experience challenges and trials and heartaches and setbacks. And what I want to deal with this morning is the question of how we, as followers of God, followers of Jesus Christ, are going to choose to respond to these challenges in life. Because we're all going to face them. And here's the key, friends. How we choose to respond to the challenges in our lives will determine whether or not we experience life to the full the, G- the way Jesus wants for us to experience it. In fact, Jesus himself said in John 10.10, I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. That's what Jesus desires for all of us, to experience life to the full. Will we experience this life to the full Or will we allow the challenges and the obstacles and the trials in our lives to leave us paralyzed and defeated without hope? So this morning, as we look at the question of how we're going to respond to the obstacles of life, I'd like for us to examine the story of a nation that faced a tremendous obstacle. And in looking at the story of how this nation chose to deal with this particular obstacle maybe we can draw out some spiritual applications for our lives, for how we too might face with hope the challenges and the obstacles and the trials that present themselves in our path. Because again, we're all going to face them. Now, the particular story that I'd like for us to look at this morning comes out of a chapter in the life of the nation of Israel. The story is found in uh, 1 Samuel 17, and the story I'm thinking about today is actually a story that probably all of you are familiar with. It's the story of David and Goliath. How many of you like the story of David and Goliath? That's one of my favorite stories in the whole Bible. We're going to look at the story of David and Goliath today. Now, here's the agenda. I'm going to read the story. Actually, we're going to read the story together. And then I'm going to come back, and I want to make some observations about some things going on in the story. And then we're going to draw out some applications. What does this have to do with us today, with our lives? So that's the agenda. And now before I get into reading this passage of Scripture, let me just set the scene for us here, okay? Now, the nation of Israel here is battling the nation of the Philistines. And the nation of Israel's army is on one side of a great valley, 
and the nation of the Philistines' army is camped out on the other side of this great valley. And in the middle, this valley in between them is where the battle was going to take place. But the Bible tells us that before the battle had actually begun, a champion soldier, a champion warrior from the Philistine army, a giant named Goliath, would come out and taunt the Israelites, talk trash to the Israelites, verbally assault and abuse the Israelites. That's what's happening here. Now, let's get into the story and let's read a little bit about more, more about who this champion Goliath was and what he was saying to the nation of Israel. So if you would, follow along with me, 1 Samuel 17. We're going to start in verse 4. I'm going to jump around a bit, so just hang with me. I'll, I'll let you know where we're going, all right? Starting in verse 4. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. He was over nine feet tall. All right, guys, listen to this. This guy makes Shaquille O'Neal look like a midget, okay? All right, this guy's huge. He's nine feet tall. All right. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he wore a coat of scale of armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. Now, people often ask me, Jason, well, what's that supposed to mean? What's 5,000 shekels? Well, in the ancient Hebrew, 5,000 shekels basically meant that it weighed a whole heck of a lot. All right? He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he wore a coat of scale of armor weighing 5,000 shekels, and on his legs he wore bronze greaves, and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and its iron point weighed 600 whole heck of a lots. And his shield bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. This day, then he said, this day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. Now hear this, friends. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Jump down to verse 16. For 40 days, 40 days this was happening, the Philistine came forward every morning, every evening, took his stand and talked trash against the nation of Israel. For 40 days. And Israel was dismayed and terrified. Jump ahead to verse 20. Early in the morning, David left the flock with a shepherd loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle position, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines, and greeted his brothers. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance. And David heard it. When the Israelites saw the man, now listen again. When the Israelites saw the man, they all ran from him in great fear. Now the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his father's family from taxes in Israel. 
David asked the men standing near him, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Interesting. Jump ahead to verse 31. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul. And Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, You're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a boy. And he's been a fighting man from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep sheep when a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock. I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair. I struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Friends, we all know how the story ends, don't we? David walks into that valley and he approaches the giant with a few small stones and a shepherd's sling. And this boy, who literally was probably no older than any of you high schoolers out there, this boy with a sling and a few stones, he faces down this behemoth of a man and he strikes down the giant and he kills him. And David's actions restore hope to the army of Israel. And they run across the valley and they defeat the Philistines. Now I want to make a few observations about this story this morning. Some observations that maybe you've never even thought of in reading the story of David and Goliath. And the first thing I want to note this morning is that the army of Israel had lost hope. The army of Israel had lost hope. They had become paralyzed and defeated because of their fear of this giant. The obstacle in front of them seemed too great for them to overcome. Now, friends, what that leads me to wonder, what that leads me to ask is, as I look at this story, is this. And think about this. Have you ever stopped to wonder why it was that the army of Israel The army of Israel, which was the army of God on earth, right? The army of Israel, the army of God on earth. Don't be mistaken, friends. The army of Israel, they had won victories on behalf of God. God had brought them through all kinds of trials and heartaches and tribulations. And God had done all kinds of mighty wonders through the army of Israel. The army of Israel, the army of God on earth. Why is it that this army was... Uh, paralyzed with fear because of this one giant, and yet a senior high-age shepherd boy comes along and asks, who's this uncircumcised Philistine talking trash about our God? You know, why is that? What was so different about David's view of the giant and the army of Israel's view of the giant? David walks into the same situation, looks at the same giant, the same set of circumstances, but David comes away with a completely different response. What's going on? 
Well, maybe a distinction could help us here. And I'd like with you to think with me for a moment about the difference between glancing at something and gazing at something. Think with me for a moment. What does it mean to glance at something and what does it mean to gaze at something? Well, friends, when, when you glance at something, the object comes into your field of vision and you see it, you know it's there, but you look right past it, right? That's a glance. Like, I see it, but I, I just I look right past it. That's a glance. Now, a gaze, on the other hand, is when an object comes into your field of vision and you see this object, but you don't simply just pass over it. This object, it captures your attention. It commands your focus. It demands your, your stare. You focus, you stare intently upon it. That's a gaze. You can't take your eyes off it. I remember, some of you guys can relate to this, I remember when, when I got married and my wife was walking down the aisle at our wedding and her looked just beautiful in her wedding dress, and I remember I, I was gazing at her. I couldn't take my eyes off of her, right? That's a gaze. Now, what does this glancing versus gazing distinction have to do with David and the army of Israel? Well, think with me for a moment here, friends. The difference between the army of Israel and David was that the army of Israel was gazing at the giant and glancing at God. David comes along, and David, he sees the giant, but he glances at the giant, and David's gaze, David's gaze was on God. David walks into the situation, looks out at the giant in the valley, and David sees the giant, he glances at the giant, but he focuses. He focuses on God. David's gaze was on God. The same situation, but two completely different responses because of their gaze. The army of Israel gazed at the giant. David gazed at God. And they came away with two completely different responses. You see, friends, David, David was a gazer. He was a gazer. David's entire life was characterized by hope. And the reason David's life was characterized by hope was because he was a gazer. He gazed at God. David gazed at the greatness of God. And he gazed at the faithfulness of God. And because of this, his entire life was characterized by hope. A hope which stemmed from his vision of the greatness and faithfulness of God. Now, friends, if you don't believe me this morning that David was a gazer, turn in your Bibles real quick to Psalm 27, verse 4. Psalm 27, verse 4. In fact, you can read it on the screen behind me. Look at this. Proof, proof that David was a gazer. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Friends, the cry of David's heart was to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. To gaze upon the greatness of the Lord and the faithfulness of the Lord. And in gazing upon the greatness and faithfulness of the Lord, this produced great hope in David's life because he walked through life gazing at God. His gaze was on the Lord. The army of Israel, on the other hand, their gaze was on the giant. 
They had glanced at God and gazed at the giant, the obstacle in front of them. And in gazing at the giant, this produced hopelessness and great despair in their lives. Now the second observation I want to make about the story is this. We know that David was a gazer. He gazed at God and glanced at Goliath. But friends, why was it that David chose to gaze at God? Why is it that David went into this situation as a person of hope while the army of Israel, the army of God, was gazing at the giant, trapped in despair, overwhelmed by the obstacle in front of them? I mean, it wasn't like David had a monopoly on gazing at God or anything, right? It wasn't like David was the only one who had experienced God's greatness and faithfulness. I mean, we're talking about the army of Israel, the army of God, who had witnessed all kinds of victories with God's help, who had seen God do all kinds of miraculous things on their behalf. But they forgot that. Why? Why did they take their gaze off of God? And what was so different about David versus the army of Israel? Well, friends, it's right here in the text. Take a look again at verses 34 through 37. Listen to why David chose to gaze at God and to focus and trust in God. David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it. I struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be just like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Friends, the reason David chose to gaze at God and glance at the giant was because David recalled God's past victories over previous giants in his life. David recalled God's greatness and faithfulness over previous trials, over previous challenges, over previous giants. And this produced hope in David's heart. Hope that this new obstacle in front of them would in front of him would be just like one of them. Because David knew that his God was great and his God was faithful. And David knew that if God can help me defeat the lion and if God can help me defeat the bear, God can beat this Philistine giant right here today. Because my God is great and my God is faithful. You see, the army of Israel, they had forgotten the victories that God had won on their behalf. They had failed to recall the great and faithful things that God had done for them in the past. And God had won all kinds of victories for them in the past. But they forgot that. And instead they chose to focus on the giant, the obstacle in front of them. David focused on God's greatness and faithfulness. And because of that, suddenly the giant didn't appear so big anymore. Isn't that interesting? You see, friends, when we focus on the greatness and faithfulness of God. You need to understand something. When we focus on the greatness and faithfulness of God, there is no giant in our lives that is bigger than our great God. Am I right? Amen? There is no trial that is bigger than our great God. There is no heartache that is bigger than our great and faithful God. And David focused on the greatness and faithfulness of God. And that gave him the hope that he needed to walk confidently, confidently into that valley and boldly face down 
this giant. The problem is, is when we take our focus or our gaze off of God and instead place our focus and our gaze upon the obstacles and the challenges and the giants in our lives, what that does is that empowers those giants and it makes them look bigger than they really are. It makes them look absolutely huge because our gaze is in the wrong place when we gaze at the giants and we glance at God. David gazed at the greatness of God and the faithfulness of God. And because of that, the giant didn't appear so big. Now notice something here, friends. The giant didn't disappear, did he? Didn't disappear. David still had to walk into that valley and face that giant. But David was able to walk into that valley with a spirit of hope because he knew that his God was great and his God was faithful. The army of Israel, they forgot what God had done for them. They gazed at the giant, and that produced despair in their lives. And it made the giant look absolutely huge, bigger than he really was. Well, friends, I want to bring this home to us now this morning. Spend some time in application. What does this story have to do with our lives? And when I say our lives, honestly, friends, I mean all of us, myself included. This isn't just about me preaching at you. This is... This is truth that I need in my own life as I face down my own giants. So by way of application today, I want to ask us a few questions. And this might hit home, okay? This is, this is gut check time. This is time to look inside ourselves and see what God might have to say to us this morning. So application number one, question number one is this. When you look at your life this morning, what are the giants in your life? What are your Goliaths? What in your life feels bigger than God today? What causes you to lose hope? For some of you, it might be a situation that's out of your control. Maybe you've recently lost a job and you're trying to figure out how you're going to pay the bills this month. Maybe for some of you, it's a disease you're battling. And you carry around this sickness inside of you and it's eating you away. It's causing you to lose hope. Maybe for some of you it's the loss of a loved one. Maybe a relationship that recently came to an end or the death of a family member. And the pain of that loss is so deep and great. And you wonder if your joy will ever be restored. For others of us, it might be something personal, like a sin we're battling. Maybe there's a sin in your life today, and it feels like that sin owns you. It controls you. And you've prayed to God a hundred times, God, please remove this sin from my life. And yet you find yourself constantly returning to it, and you just want to be rid of it. You wonder, am I ever going to be free from this sin? For others, it might be a wound that won't heal. Maybe some of you have been so badly hurt. Somebody's abused you emotionally, physically, and you have a wound inside of you that won't heal. And it's ugly. It's festered, it's pussy, it's painful. And you wonder if that wound will ever heal. 
For others of us, it might be guilt. Guilt over a past decision, a past choice. And you carry with you this guilt every day. And it weighs on you like a ton of bricks. This guilt, it weighs you down and it beats you up and you just want to be free of it. And you wonder, am I ever going to get rid of this guilt? Friends, we all battle our giants, don't we? We all battle our giants. And for some of us, our giants have caused us to lose hope. Trapped us in despair. Friends, I want to say something to you this morning. If that's where you find yourself today, without hope, trapped in despair, let me say this. And honestly, friends, I don't mean to make light of any of the giants, any of the difficulties, any of the struggles, obstacles, or pain in our lives. I really don't. But friends, if your giants are causing you to lose hope today, you need to ask yourself a very serious question. Is God bigger than my giants, or isn't he? Is God bigger than my giants, or isn't he? When you think about the giants in your life today, either God is bigger than your giants, or he isn't. And I'll tell you something, friends. If God isn't bigger, we might as well go looking for another God, right? I'll tell you something, friends. The truth is, is that we have a God who is great. We have a God who is faithful, a God who is bigger than any giant that we might ever encounter. And if we recall that and lean on that, God can lead us with hope as we face down any obstacle, any challenge, any giant. Application number two, question number two. Where's your gaze today? Where's your focus? And do you need a fresh vision of the greatness of God today. You know, I think a lot of us just plain old need a fresh vision of God's greatness. I mean, honestly, I know I'm not telling you anything new here today. You know this stuff. God is great. God is faithful. You know this stuff. But I think sometimes we just need a fresh vision of that. A fresh vision of the greatness and faithfulness of our God. Because out of a proper vision of God's greatness will come a life that's characterized by hope. If we have a vision of the faithfulness of God and the greatness of God, our lives will be characterized by hope in spite of any challenge we're dealing with. And now this is another important consideration as you think about where your gaze is. Could it be that the obstacles in your life, the giants in your life today, are only as big as they are because of your focus? I mean, think about that. As I said earlier, when we take our gaze off of God and instead place our gaze upon the giants in our lives, that empowers those giants and it makes them look bigger than they really are. So again, friends, where's your gaze today? Where's your focus? If you're a person caught in despair, a person who finds themselves paralyzed or defeated, without hope, let me encourage you to ask God for a fresh vision of His greatness today. Now, David had a son named Solomon. And David's son Solomon was another guy who understood the importance upon gazing upon God. David's son Solomon wrote two of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Solomon said, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. Gaze upon Him, and He will make your path straight. 
Now notice something, friends. Solomon says that God will make our path straight. But notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say that all these paths will be short little strolls. He doesn't say that all these paths are going to be nice, gentle, downhill slopes. He doesn't even say that all these paths are going to be obstacle-free, does he? He just says that God will make our path straight. And what I believe that means, friends, is that no matter what paths we must travel in life, when our trust is in the Lord, we can move forward, straight ahead, never wavering in our hope that God is in control and God knows what we're going through. And just as Joshua 1.5 promises us, God will never leave us nor forsake us. So again, friends, where's your gaze today? And then finally, application number three, question number three. When the giants come, when your giants come, what past victories of God can you recall to give you hope as you face your present giants? What past victories of God can you recall in your life? You know, I'd be willing to bet if you're caught in the midst of a difficult situation, I know this is true for me, when I'm in the midst of the giants, the challenges, the trials of life, you know, it's often hard not to feel overwhelmed, to begin to despair, to begin to lose hope. That's why we need to recall God's faithfulness on our lives from the past. You know, when the giants are right in my face and they're beating me down and I'm right in the midst of it, that's especially the times when I need to recall God's faithfulness in my life in the past, God's past victories in our lives. Romans 8.28 says that in all situations, in all things, God is working for the good of those who love Him. That means that even in the, most of the, in the midst of the most difficult, trying, challenging times in our lives, God is working to bring about good things for us. Remember, Jesus said in John 10.10, I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. Friends, God doesn't want to leave us in the midst of our giants, trapped and paralyzed and defeated, caught in despair. That's not what God wants for us. But oftentimes when we're battling the giants, we forget these promises. And that's why we need to recall what God has done for us in the past. The great and faithful things that God has done for us in the past. This is why I'm a big fan of creating what I call spiritual memorials. What do I mean by that? I mean taking pictures of the times and people in your life where you've seen God's faithfulness displayed. I mean keeping a journal, keeping a prayer diary. Keep a prayer diary where every time you have a prayer request, you write that prayer request down, and when you get an answer to that prayer request, you write down that answer, and you put a date by that, and you have something to recall the next time you're facing those giants in your life. Because you can look and you can recall those times when God has been great and God has been faithful, and that can give you hope as you face your present giants. See, friends, just as David recalled God's past victories in his life, and his recollections of God's faithfulness from the past propelled him forward to face the giant with a spirit of hope. We, too, need to recall the times when we've seen God's faithfulness at work in our lives. Because, again, friends, out of a proper vision of the greatness and faithfulness of God will come a life characterized by hope. And, friends, my promise to you is this. This is God's promise to you. A life characterized by hope hope that is found only 
and walking with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, our great and faithfulness, our great and faithful God. A life that is characterized by hope is a life that can boldly walk into any valley and confidently face down any giant. Let's close on a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, our great and faithful God, we love you. We're so thankful for your greatness and faithfulness to us. Lord, I know that in this room today there are people who are facing some pretty big giants. I know there are people in this room right now who are struggling, who are maybe caught in despair, trapped without hope. They feel like the giant in their life is too bigger, too, is bigger than you, too great for them to overcome. Lord, I just pray for those people right here today, God, that anyone who's caught in despair this morning might get a fresh vision of your greatness and faithfulness today. That you, Lord, might come and be close to them, draw close to them, Lord, and give them the confidence, Lord, the encouragement that they need. Be their Prince of Peace this morning, Lord. Be the one who walks with them into their valley to face down their giant, Lord. Heavenly Father, we know that you're a great and faithful God. And we thank you for those promises, Lord. And we trust in you today, God. We trust in you today as we face our giants. God, help us to lean on you, to trust in you, to gaze upon you, Lord, so that we might glance at our giants. We thank you, Heavenly Father, in Jesus' precious name.